Good morning. Um, I just before I introduce the scripture reading today, I just want to say how grateful I am to be here with you today. Um, I, I talked in first service about. Do you remember when the question mark with the exclamation was created? I think it was by a president after World War II. What a great idea! Because you can't express one. There's a certain expression that you have to have both. You have to have surprise. Well, I feel that way today. I can't express with one word my emotions. I'm joyful. I'm grateful. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. I don't know what the word is for that. Just know that uh, I'm really grateful to be here. It's been six months since I spoke, and a year before that, Pastor Rody asked me to speak for the first time. And uh, yeah, so today I want you to hold uh, Jim in, in prayer while he reads our first reading. It's kind of complicated. It's a very um, it's a hard reading to to parse, and. And both readings today, both the, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth and in the gospel reading, there's so much you could cover. There's so much you could treat. We, we'd be here way longer than any of us want to be. So I've tried to, um, tried to hone in on one or two pieces from each reading. Um, as you read, as you hear the first uh, text being read, and you hear Paul speaking about a third heaven and paradise and things no mortal is allowed to repeat. Listen a little bit beneath the words, I invite you, and, and hear what Paul is struggling with and, um, and how God responds to him. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So our, our second text is also um, certainly quite well known. There are, there's a, 
famous reference to a prophet without honor in his own home. There's uh, the sending of the 12. Again, just so much to treat. Um, books have been written, really, on, on these passages. Um, as you listen to the gospel reading, what struck me was what it says about family and about coming home. So listen for that message as you, uh, as you hear the word. Oh, and let's rise, please, as we, as we hear the gospel this morning. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brothers, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went out about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A friend of mine has an Aunt Camille who talks to Jesus. Well, she doesn't pray to him. She talks to him. Well, he is the risen Lord, she says. But to hear her speak, you'd think he'd risen right into her living room. How are you this morning, Lord? Did you get your rest? You know you can't just go on saving people if you don't get your rest. Oh, me, I don't need anything. I don't need anything today, Lord. I can carry my own weight. I know you have a lot of other work to do, so I'm just fine. But what, Lord, can I do for you? What can I do for you today, Jesus? It's not about me. It's about you. Camille has terrible arthritis. Her eyes are clouded over from cataracts. Her hip bothers her all the time. But she never complains. She says that for her, Jesus is enough. In today's passage from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, Paul does a lot of boasting about not boasting, or maybe it's not boasting about boasting. I'm not quite sure. This type of inner conflict uh, runs frequently through Paul's writings, 
as he struggles to make sense of the incredible gifts that God has given him through Christ, despite his very real sins and weakness. Christ came to him, spoke to him, put him on the right path. And even since then, Paul continues to be filled with revelations, with visions, the burning sense of mission. But his life still isn't perfect. His vision may be fueling his mission, but he's still suffering. This is the passage where Paul rather famously refers to the thorn in his side. Uh, What the thorn actually was has been debated, perhaps uh, an actual physical ailment, his eyesight, some think. Other people have said maybe it's an actual person, uh, a messenger, because he refers to a messenger from Satan, and we'll never really know. Clearly, though, it's, it's a real source of distress. Paul asks the Lord not once but three times, please remove this from me, Lord. God doesn't remove the thorn. He tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And immediately Paul goes from not boasting about the revelations to boasting about weakness, which may be not boasting about strength, I'm not sure. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. But it isn't about power. It isn't about boasting, whether about gifts or weaknesses. I think Paul is still focusing a little bit on the wrong things here. God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. That's it. God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. Truly God's grace is the root of our faith. In his book, The Experience and Language of Grace, theologian Roger Haight develops a contemporary theology of grace. Uh, Haight is a scholar in residence at Union Theological Seminary in New York. We read in the introduction that a theology of grace deals with the most basic question of how God interacts with humans and therefore with the world. It's rather thick reading. He reviews the text of uh, three towering figures in Christian history. Augustine, whose name I can never pronounce, because I always want to say Augustine, Aquinas, and Luther, and one contemporary theologian, Karl Rahner. For those of you who don't know Rahner, he's pretty thick, too. It helps to have an interpreter like Haight, who says that Rahner's theology views the world and history in terms of a dialogue with God. God enters into dialogue with human beings by freely offering them his love and asking, and that's the part that gets me every time, asking for our free response of love. God doesn't demand our love. He wants it. He asks for it. In fact, Haight continues, this communion in grace is the very reason for creation. God created us so that God could be in communion with us. Our very nature contains a desire for God, and God put that desire there. God's grace is enough. It's all in all. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that God enters by a private door into every individual. I think that sounds pretty Methodist. I know he wasn't Methodist, but maybe he was a closet Methodist. I don't know. 
And Carl Rahner would say that God put that door there to begin with. God's grace is enough. Grace is our God-given ability to be in communion with God. And isn't it the same God-given door that allows us to be in communion with one another? Your power is your grace is enough, Lord. Now we turn to Nazareth, the place of Jesus' youth. There's so much going on in this passage, but I really was struck by he's coming home to a place where he spoke in the temple at 12, and they were amazed. But now, as a, a young man, they don't want to hear it. What's that about? Why is it that our families always have that ability to burst our bubbles? Well, let's face it, who knows us better than our families? Um, only my sister Martha knows about the time that I burned a hole in her brand new salmon pink velvet sofa bed because I was reading late by candlelight. She was mad at me for months. But that's family. And only I know about the time she snuck out the hatch in her room. They, these older houses used to have a, um, a pass-through from outside where you could put the wood in. And she snuck out to meet her boyfriend and have a cigarette. Only I know about that. Well, I guess you know about that too now, but your family, right? No, I asked her permission before sharing. I did. So here comes Jesus, preaching in his own village, only now he's a grown man. It's, it's like coming home from college or your, or your first job, and you're a different person. You feel like you're grown up now, but to your family, no, you're still the girl that put the hole in your sister's couch. Maybe the villagers felt that Jesus was boasting. What is this wisdom that's been given to him? Where is this man getting all this? His brothers and sisters are still in the village. They're tending the fields, carrying water, making themselves useful. And he could do no deeds of power there. I don't know what the text is referring to by deeds of power. Maybe walking on water, maybe parting the seas, or calming the seas. Um, but the thing that strikes me about the text is what comes next. He could do no deeds of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Oh, okay. When's the last time I laid hands on sick people and healed them? I, I do believe in laying on of hands, but isn't there power in healing? And, and isn't that enough? Your grace is enough, Jesus. And isn't that what grace does? It heals. It heals our relationships with our families and each other. It's the door to communion. And our families don't need us to have gifts of power. They don't need us to do miraculous deeds. They, they just want us to be happy and love God and come home once in a while. Isn't that right? Some of you know that uh, I spent nine months in school last year being an intern, uh, a chaplain intern at Providence Mount St. Vincent. It was a very rich experience, and one of the residents there, whom I, I'll call Susanna, because um, in this case I do want to protect privacy, she was just amazing. I loved her. Um, I don't know if you've heard the expression, skinny as a minute. She was just little and tough and spry and... Uh, I'd meet her in the morning 
before breakfast in the dining hall at her place at table. The minute she saw me, she'd say, Come here. Listen. Did I ever tell you I grew up on a farm in Montana? And I'd sit and listen. She'd say, I had seven kids. I told them all to go pick rocks out of the potato patch. She'd go on kind of like that, telling just about the same story every time. And I'd listen just to be with her. You know. But one week she was different. She was quieter. Um, almost thoughtful. And she talked about things she hadn't, hadn't talked about before. She, she remembered her brother, their relationship. She talked about her mother. And she said she'd seen her mother at a train station and, and that she'd flown out of the window just like an angel. That weekend, I heard that Susanna almost died. The chaplain called me. They said that they had revived her and she was holding on. But you might want to come. You might want to come see her. And so I did. She was in her room, in bed, oxygen tubes and monitors. And she looked so frail lying there. And I knelt beside her bed, and she, she caught my eye and looked right at me. And she said, how are you? She held my gaze and nodded and squeezed my hand and said it again, just in case I hadn't understood. How are you? There's a doorway in each of us. God put it there. Near birth, near death, I think we come a little closer to that door. Maybe we pass through it. I don't know. It's the door that opens when we enter into communion with each other. And with God. It's not about me, God. It's about you. It's about the grace you show me, the grace that turns me toward you, the never-ending gift of your grace. And it's not about exalting my gifts and lifting my stories. It's about using my gifts and sharing my stories to exalt you. We all know that. We all know that. I'll wrap it up now with Annie Dillard, one of my favorite authors, uh, in her book, For the Time Being. She writes about quite a few things, clouds and sand and Mongol horsemen. She reflects on Hasidic teachings and the writings of Jesuit paleontologist Tillard Duchardin. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with him. He was a man silenced by the church for his gifts, but it didn't stop him. Quoting Duchardin, and I've made his language gender neutral, Dillard says that God needs us to disclose God, to complete God, to fulfill God. Dillard believed that God's name is holy, but it's up to us to sanctify it. God's reign is universal, but it's up to us to make God reign. God's will is done, but it's up to us to accomplish it. When we use our God-given gifts to sanctify God's holy name, to help make God's reign universal, and to accomplish God's will, then truly we are deeply rooted in our faith. Amen.